The Bible says the borrower is slave to the lender. But isn't it always wrong to be a slave? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. God has ordered the world so that that there's a lot of debt in the world, and there's a lot of people that carry debt. America has huge amounts of debt. And there's obviously some reasons or sometimes where it's valid to have debt. But when you look at what Americans have debt for, they have debt because they want a bigger house, that they you know, want to go on vacation, that maybe they have medical bills. That's a big one. Sometimes because they want to eat and sometimes because they want to start a business. So are there times where it is legitimate to have debt? So I think, you know, there's probably two different, you know, groups of people in the country. And a lot of people would say, um, well, obviously there's times to have debt because I want some or all of those things. Um, and, and that's played out by the fact that I think the uh, average household debt, personal debt is uh, over $100,000 now. So obviously a lot of Americans think, yes, we should have debt. And then there's also some people who are very anti-debt, uh, who are you know, putting a lot of time and effort into ridding themselves of all the debt that they have. So I think when we look at, at, the, at the topic of debt from a biblical perspective, we need to look at what the Bible says about it and the different types of debt that there are out there in our society to see how many of those are appropriate. The, the verse that I referred to in the opening and, and, you know, that is really crucial to understand when you start to think about that is Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. That word servant is more typically translated slave. And so the idea is, is that the person who borrows money, they become slave to the one that they borrowed it from. Now, when we think about slavery, we think about all kinds of different things, but Fundamentally, slavery is a purchase of future labor. When you buy somebody to be a slave, you now own their future labor. And so when you borrow money, somebody else owns your future labor. And so should we be selling our future labor is another way to ask the question. And, you know, when we hear the word slavery today, we are, um, you know, jumping to very particular things, you know, just culturally. And the, and the point here is that when it's using the word slavery, it is implying those things. It's implying situations where your master could kill you um, because he owns you completely. It's that's implied in the verse, but also implied in the verse of situations that are not like that. And it's not saying that debt is exactly the same thing as uh, you know, being a slave in Rome, where if your master wants to kill you, your master kills you. It's not. It's not saying. It's a. It's a proverb, which means that there's truth in it, but it's not that. It's making analogy, just making comparisons. It's not a strict one-to-one comparison between debt and slavery. But but you know, it's also not something where you can just dismiss it and say, well, you know, culturally in those times, if you were in debt, it means that you were a slave. So therefore, this verse has no meaning to us today because now we have. X, Y, and Z structure of debt. No, it is telling us something fundamental about the the borrower lender borrower lender relationship. And I think it's. I mean, I do think it's really important. Kind of what you were what you were pointing out there, because what happens is is we turn the word slave into a word that either has, like you said, either has almost no meaning for us, or a word that means something so something so horrible that we can't even consider it or think about it. And that's not useful. I mean, it's, it's a really damaging thing because Scripture actually has a lot to say. Scripture uses the metaphor of slave a lot. 
Scripture actually talks about slavery. I mean, like you said, where it's translated servant, this is both in Old Testament and in New Testament, where you have these that frequently where words are used, where like doulos in the New Testament, and where, we th- where we've turned it into servant, and we've turned it into something that is completely different. And like you said, every version of slavery that exists today, and slavery does exist today, has existed for a long time. It's not like we've, we haven't really come up with completely brand new forms of it for the most part. And so I, I just think it's really important that if you do this, you end up losing an ability to think about things that God says are both bad and good, and that you, you end up not being able to reason. And that's, that's a really dangerous place to be in. And I think that culturally we've gotten to that position. The word slavery has become kind of a stronghold in a sense. And I think the reason why it's so it's held up this way, we should understand that there's a vested interest in keeping people from thinking about things that God actually uses as concepts to show his glory and show his goodness. In our culture, we say it's always wrong to be a slave. And when we say that, we're rejecting things in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, it talks about how a Hebrew slave that was a slave for seven years, at the end of seven years, he could decide whether he wanted to continue as a slave. And it's not indicating that it's somehow sin for him to continue as a slave, because for some people, it's better off if they're a slave. In our view of slavery in America now, we go, that's just evil. It's not ever right to be a slave. And that's clearly not the biblical picture. We're to be slaves of righteousness. And so it's not inherently wrong to be a slave. And so when you say as a borrower, you know, the borrower is slave to the lender, all of a sudden we're going, you know, in America, when we think about that, we go, well, that's just automatically wrong. And the answer in scripture is no, it's not automatically wrong. It depends on why you go into slavery, whether it's good to go into slavery. And, you know, culturally we might say, well, it's always wrong. You know, you'd never want to be a slave. It's always wrong to be a slave. But then the Bible's also saying that most Americans are slaves. They are in some form of a slavery obligation because of the debt that they that they have. And I think that's that's we as a culture have redefined slavery to make it this thing that wasn't even it's not the right picture when people go back and look at what the slavery was like before the civil war. It's a lot more complicated and a lot more complex. And it depends who your master was. All these things that are pictured as your master Christ, then it's good to be a slave. If your master Satan, it's bad to be a slave. And it's this mixed thing that we have just kind of completely rejected the mixture. And when we start to think about the slave as the, or that the borrower was slave to the lender, if you, just dismiss it, then you're ignoring the reality that it's a lot more complicated to say whether it's good or bad. And there are times to be sold into slavery where it's a good choice to be sold into slavery. Salvation would be an example, right? I mean, that slavery is a picture of salvation as an example. And so, but to be a slave of sin is horrible. And so, and you get beaten for it. And so all these pictures are embedded in that. And so when we go, one thing we shouldn't immediately leap to, well, it's always terrible to be a servant. Well, no, that's not true. And it's, it, whether you use the word servant or the word slave, it's just not true. In Mark 9.35, where Jesus is speaking, it says, And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. It's not bad to be a servant. It's not bad to be a slave. It's not bad to do those things. The question is Why? And if you're doing those things for bad reasons, then the result of it is bad. And another verse that, that bears directly on this is first, from First Corinthians 7, and where Paul is dealing directly with the question of slavery. He says this, Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. 
But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. So there he's kind of giving, you know, the uh, the statement that it's not, it's okay to be a Christian and be a slave. If you become a Christian, you're a slave. That's where God has you. You're, you're serving um, in the place that you're put and you're ultimately serving Christ. But he also says kind of as the baseline is if you, um, if you have the option, you shouldn't be, make yourself a slave of man. Um, and, you know, we could talk about, you know, is he talking about every instance? There's, there's instances, as we're going to argue going through here, is it where it is the right choice. It is the one that makes the most sense because, you know, to put yourself under, you know, that type of obligation, the debt obligation, which is it's, uh, you know, a slavery-like obligation. Um, but there is the baseline that if you can avoid it, don't do it because you have more freedom uh, to serve Christ. So I think, you know, so there might be some people that are wondering, you know, how is debt anything like slavery? Because slavery, you have to go work in the fields and debt. I just have to, you know, make my mortgage payment. Right. And a lot of slaves over the history of the world did not work out in the field. <laughs> That's just simply, you know, there's lots of different kinds of slavery. And we just have that picture in our mind, even in antebellum South, it wasn't all that picture in the North when there were slaves, it wasn't all that picture in the I mean, in the North, it was almost nobody working in fields that were slaves. And so when you go back and you consider it, I mean, slavery, as I said before, is the sale of future labor. And when you think about it that way, that means you have real obligations to the person who bought the labor. You have the obligation to give them your labor. You have sold something to them that you now have an obligation to give them. So when you borrow money, you're borrowing money saying, I will work to earn this back later. And, you know, that's fundamentally is what slavery is. You've bought all their future labor. And so, you know, and, and one thing that, that when people were talking about the, the nation going into debt, you know, back in the 20s and the 1920s and 1930s and talking about the massive debt that we were going into for World War I and World War II, everybody was saying, why are we selling our children's labor? Why are we selling them into slavery? So people used to understand this. Now we just go, oh, yeah, it's just borrowing money. And we shouldn't be thinking about it that lightly either because we are selling our future labor. And now in this country, a lot of people, you know, and this isn't just true in America. I mean, in Japan, they're, they're taking mortgages that take 100 years to pay off, right? They're selling their grandchildren's labor. They're not just selling their children's labor anymore. And at our national debt level, we're probably selling our grandchildren's labor too. And so the big question is, what are you selling it for? What are you getting now in return for your future labor? And it is a real, you know, real obligation because we, we tend to think with at least some of these, you know, we might say, well, it's not slavery because um, I'm just I bought a house. And if I ever want to sell the house, I just sell it. And I, you know, OK, I, uh, you know, I, I don't get all the money from the house because it goes to the bank. But, you know, I'm not in slavery anymore. But I mean, the reality is that house prices don't always go up or stay constant. So the fact that you know, next year you think I can sell my house, I can sell this brand new car I bought. It, it's not that simple, you know. And so you do have that real obligation where, you know, you, you are restricted in what you can do. If you, just, if you just bought a brand new house and a brand new car and you decide, oh, I think I actually want to go be a missionary to China, you might not be able to do that because you have an obligation to pay for these things that you bought. And so, I mean, that's, I mean, a somewhat far-fetched example of, you know, where you are constrained from serving Christ because of this, you know, 
debt you've put yourself in. But but it, it's you know that is true for a lot of people. I mean, you think back to like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I mean, a lot of people suffered severely um, and and had severe changes in their life because of the debt that they had put themselves in. And and so you know there you know a few a decade, a little over a decade ago, is that right? Yeah. A little over a decade ago, you know, a lot of people, you know, that was hitting very close to home, that that debt they were in was a real constraint on what they were able to do. Okay, so you've only worked for me, so you've never worked in the corporate marketplace. But in corporations, I would say 50% of the people are affected by the fact that they have mortgages in what jobs they can take, what positions they can take. They, They get sick and tired of what they're working at. Doesn't matter. They have that mortgage. They have to pay the mortgage. And so I think I think when you start to get out and see a broader swath of people, it's really prevalent, especially almost everybody that I, you know, everybody that considers whether they'll take a job, they always have to say, can I get rid of the house? So much so that when there was high demand for people in certain industries, the companies would buy their house because the slavery to the house, to the mortgage was so great, they couldn't get anybody to move. So the only way to get them to move, because it would take them three, four, five, six months to sell their house, and they wanted to start right away. So companies would buy houses all the time. So it's real, and it's a lot more prevalent than I think you've experienced. And one of the things that's useful to round this out is I think when people think about debt and they think about slavery, they don't tie this to other verses that talk about the same concept. When Christ talks about that a soldier doesn't entangle himself with the things of the world, there's a part of it is because the soldier has a master. You know what I mean? The soldier has someone that he's serving or a purpose that he's serving. And so whenever you – we don't think of debt as entangling ourselves – we don't think is, and there's this part of it where I mean, these are talking about different facets of the same thing. Because when you take on debt, you now have a master, and that master requires certain things of you. And like you're talking about, and like I mean, like you're mentioning, now you don't have the same freedom that you had before. You can't. The soldier couldn't wage war in the way he needs to wage war. And there's, I mean, when it talks about money, a man can only cannot serve two masters, and it talks about those be either God or Mammon. This this starts to be the same principle again. Is that who are you a slave to? Who are you, who is your actual lord that you're serving? And so, there's this there's this issue where when we when we write off slavery in our mind, and we say that slavery is this horrible thing, these other verses that touch on the very same principle, we actually don't understand how we become that person who has become entangled, who has been serving two masters, because debt is this way that that mo- that. It's the most common way to become a slave today is by taking on debt. And so all of a sudden we divorce ourselves from the spiritual reality that Scripture's trying to talk to us about. And I mean, when you think about David, right, when David escapes and he basically builds his army when Saul's going to chase him, I mean, he kind of gets the, the lowlifes of society, right? Those are the ones that follow him. And if you read the actual passage in 1 Samuel 22, it says, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Bedullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. So we look at it now, and these are people that are abandoning their life because of their debt. I mean, that is like the serious burden that you bear that really affects you. And we pretend like it doesn't, but... I know a lot of people that it really affects, and it really affects 
the choices they make on a daily basis because once you get in debt, it gets harder and harder to get out of debt because you have to pay interest on the debt and all this other stuff. And and it becomes a cycle that's that's very difficult to escape. People are slaves. We we're gonna you know not be completely anti debt because I mean mortgages is one of the it's the the biggest personal debt in the country and and that's one of the ones that for a lot of people makes the most sense because that is something that you you need you need a place to live and so there's many instances where you know it does make sense instead of spending fifty years paying you know two thousand dollars a month in rent that you put that towards a mortgage payment and that does, because you know just there are verses that say you know the soldier does not entangle himself in the affairs of this life there's also verses that talk about you know you know being a good steward. Uh, a righteous right. man builds up an inheritance for his children. And so those are real things where, you know, there are balances on the other hand that say, actually, no, th- this does make sense. And it, it, it would be, you know, if you, you know, in the right circumstance, it would make sense to get into that mortgage because then you are not, you know, you will end up with, with something at the end of it. But, but but basically what you're saying is that there's a calculation that you can do at some point and say, is this a worthwhile thing to spend my future labor on? Is this, is this a worthwhile thing in which to invest my future labor? Invest future labor and have somebody else have the right to demand that, exactly. which has real yeah. restrictions with it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not just that they get the future labor. They actually have rights to say, you have to pay this mortgage, so you have to live there until this mortgage is paid, right? I mean, a lot of mortgages require you to actually be living in the house. Well, that puts a real restriction on you. And one of the things we'll talk about later in the episode as we talk about how American, our attitude towards that has been, is the reason, one of the reasons why houses cost so much is because we've been so willing to go into debt for extravagance. And so the houses that are built are built in a, they're, they're not built to say, I want to create an incredibly modest house. I want to create the least expensive house that you could functionally live with and you could buy for $50,000 or $60,000, something like that. No, they're they're going to use space in a way. It's, it's going to be, I mean, houses are much more built for show. And, and this, this affects the culture and the desires of the culture causes people to go into greater degrees of slavery because that's just the attitude of the culture towards debt itself. And so, I mean, we just need to really be aware that it's not a closed loop. The cultural attitude really affects everything. Right. And I think there's two ways that it really ties to the government. One is that they make mortgage interest deductible which really basically is pushing people in that direction so that the the finances right because if you lease versus versus you know buy a house and have a mortgage one of the reasons that it makes so much more sense to have a mortgage is you can write off the interest and so it reduces your cost and so the person who bought the house outright that didn't have a mortgage on it or they had a, a mortgage that was not for a primary resident they have to pay tax on that they don't get that interest off and so all of a sudden you're creating all these dyna- economic dynamics that make it look a lot different because somebody that, that you know, 100 years ago they or 150 years ago, they might go, yeah, I could spend this or I could spend more on a monthly payment to get this house, so I'll just rent. And that might be a wiser financial decision, but the government is pushing home ownership so much that it changes the financial dynamics. And the other thing is because people are so willing to borrow money, we build really expensive houses. And I'm not even saying that the big house, I'm saying right. the, the requirements for the code are absurd. You look at our codes versus any place else in the world, we've made the decision that you have to try to minimize risk to 
as close to zero as you can get it. Well, what they're saying is it's worth it to sell your life into slavery if you reduce it so that you don't, so an additional five houses don't burn down in the United States in a year, right? And so we're willing to spend huge amounts of money to do that. And that's where our codes are designed because everybody's so willing to do debt that they don't care that it adds a certain percentage because all it means is a dollar more in their monthly payment. But if it meant that they could buy a house versus not buying a house, there'd be a huge pressure. So the government is pushing people in structuring it so that a lot of people have to get mortgages. That's just what makes sense. But a lot of that is government policy because people aren't saying, wait a second, we shouldn't have debt. And so the government's saying, of course we want you to have debt. And this is a slight rabbit trail, but it's not a new problem. I mean, you look, you read about pretty much any of the founding fathers, especially the ones from Virginia, and they were in massive debt. They were making bad, bad financial decisions. Um, and, you know, they they didn't all go bankrupt, but they, a lot of them should have. Um, and then you even go even back farther. I mean, the pilgrims, when they come over, they get a massive debt. And some of that maybe was necessary, but they, they were not being careful with it. And it really restricted their ability. They were having to go out to go places to trade. Instead of, they came here saying, we want to send out missionaries, but they have to spend years and years, I mean, decades, doing trading expeditions instead of missionary expeditions. And it's a real thing. And it's something that was a problem then and it's still a problem today. I mean, one of the things that that I just don't think people take it seriously enough, I'm sure they don't, because I've had a lot of experience with this, where Psalm 37.21 says, the wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. I'll tell you what, most people don't think that a sign of being unrighteous, a sign of not being saved, is that you don't pay your debts. But that's what the Bible said. The wicked borrows and does not repay. The person who just goes, oh, I'll just keep borrowing. I'll just keep running up credit card debt. It's actually a sign of not being saved, of being wicked. Because if you don't say that you have a real obligation to other people, that's a really big problem that I think the church doesn't talk about, the level of seriousness of that problem. Because this is one thing that people say, well, you know, debt isn't really like slavery because when I have my mortgage, all they can do is take my house. When I have my car, all they can do is take my car. But the Bible said, but that's not the deal. The deal isn't you keep the car while you're making the payments. The deal is you promise to pay them the money. And if you don't do that, the recourse they have is they take your house, they take your car. But the Bible says, pay the money back. And... Most places that give mortgages, their answer is, if that house dropped at 20% in value, is, well, we have to just accept the loss. But the person who borrowed the money still owes the money, even after they take the house. What's left, they still owe. It's not like they get that wiped out. That's not how it works. They still owe it. Right. But yet they want to just go, oh, we can just give up the house and we're done. That's not how it works. And the reason why people tend to pay things back like houses and cars, and even though there's, I mean, there's a huge industry of just collections, you know what I mean? So there's plenty of people who fight tooth and nail to not pay back. But in those cases, people actually, these companies actually have some recourse to cause pain. If you've ever actually lent someone money, if you've ever actually just personally lent someone else money, a lot of people don't pay you back ever. And there's a part of it where because <laughs> really, they, Charles, <laughs> what a shock. I, and, and they, and they don't, and there's a part of it where they don't think you can, there's nothing you can do about it. And once oh, no, it, you, you have to understand from an elder's perspective, let me just tell you this from an elder's <laughs> perspective, it is great to loan people money. 
Because when they don't pay you back, you can just go, you're wicked. <laughs> now they leave the church and stuff. I've had lots of people that have left the church. But the reality is you go, you have no testimony of being saved. Right. I understand. It's a great so, so if you go to our church and Dan says, hey, want to borrow some money? Oh, you need a bigger house than that. I never solicit borrowers, but I have I don't know if you say you never, but there's probably been a few occasions where – You've offered someone. Oh, I've offered because right, right. somebody's talking about the right. difficulty of their I, I, debt. I understand, yes. Like, I you, really uh, want another jet ski, but so, I just can't quite afford it. Let me say that differently. Yes, you never go, you never try to encourage someone to take, go into debt. There are people that you've seen who are in a really bad position and you offer to help But them. I can I, go through a list of people in my mind. It's like, and the good thing is, say somebody hasn't actually joined the church because they're questionable. And they're questioning their own faith and stuff. So they've never joined the church and they are in financial problems and you loan them money. They disappear and they will never talk to you. They just like, will never talk to you because I mean, you tell them that they're wicked because they don't borrow (laughs) because they don't repay and they have no interest in repaying. And, and it makes a really bright line for people that they can see it and they can understand it and they don't have any desire to repay, which means that they don't, they don't see that as a real obligation. They don't see it as slavery. And they're basically going, nah, 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 you can't do anything. And the reality is, yeah, I don't need to do anything. God told them they're wicked. That should That's enough. Because the point isn't that, you know, if you borrow money and you aren't able to pay back, that therefore in every situation you are wicked. I mean, or in that, just get people, just loan money and then call people. I mean, that's not the point. The point is but it's the, where they don't want to right, pay these back. These people are not wanting to pay back where right. you could go into their life and say, do X, Y, and Z, and you will be very likely to be able to pay me back. You know, even if you don't have the money, here's simple steps you take and you will be able to pay me back. And, the, and that's, and they're not doing that. It's not right. something where they have, you know, a million dollars of medical debt and, you know. Right, right. Yes. Not, this is, the, this is the case where you're going, hey, pay me back $10 a month, and they're still going out and eating fast food five times a week. You know, they just don't pay back. And so it's obvious there that it is a it is a easy way to have to do to check somebody's spiritual temperature in a lot of cases. So you look at this first, the wicked borrows and does not repay. And we've we've been talking a lot about mortgages. One of the most interesting cases that, one of the most devastating cases, I should say, when you think about debt right now that people are suffering under is is the education loans that they get. And so somebody goes to college and they get this massive loan for a degree that is not a profitable degree, and now they're stuck. Or maybe they did get a profitable degree. Maybe they have that law degree, that medical degree, but they're still sitting on a six-figure debt. And there's no collateral. Now. <laughs> right. There's no You're collateral. Old. <laughs> ah, yeah. There's, are, there, are there really seven-figure debts for I'm college? I'm sure there are. But medical school and law school, like stuff like that. I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. That's a case where you come out of school and you've got no collateral for that. And and everybody feels that. I mean, you can you feel in that situation, I am a slave, that, that this money is just going to be taken out of my paycheck and... You know, I have sold my future labor for this education. And a problem with that is that a lot of people are just not when they're kids who are making these kinds of decisions and they don't know what they're doing. And so then they get into this situation where it's true on the one hand that the borrower is slave to the lender. It's also true on the other hand that the wicked borrows and does not repay. And then the government comes along and they're pressuring you in all of these kinds of places to get those kinds of 
uh, loans. And then the politicians will turn around and say, by the way, we're going to forgive them all. And it's just this mess where it's, it's compounded over and over and over by our desire to get into those kind of debts our, and, and being told that that's the right thing to do, that, that's the right course to follow. And then at the same time, that is being further enabled. And so you're being made a debtor. You're, been, you're being made a slave. You're being made a slave to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, whoever's underwriting that loan that you have. And the government's then coming along and saying that they're going to be your savior from that. When really what they're doing is they're just enabling you to be wicked, to borrow and not repay. Right. And you look at some of the law. I mean, their whole structure is about that, right? Because if you get a law degree, they say, hey, just come and be a, a, you know, work for the government for 10 years and we'll wipe out all your debt. Well, they're just saying they'll ignore that debt. And it's we talked about this in the, the education episode about how the colleges then just raise their rates because they know the government's paying it anyway, so it doesn't matter. And the student knows they're never going to pay it back, so it doesn't matter how much they pay for the education. That's right. how you get the million-dollar debt Sure, is because everybody's going, it's all a joke. And the government does it because they need slaves. You know, I mean, the well, government, they, the government needs this this type of people for, you know, they need the more The government can buy slaves for free because they just print more money. And right. there you get inflation. Right. I mean, it's all tied together. I mean, that's what they want. And they don't want people to have a sense of righteousness because, you know, our government is so big and so unrighteous in what so many of the things that it does is, right? I mean, it's not constrained by biblical constraints of what government should do at all. And so because of that, yeah, they want a lot of people to go along with them. They want a lot of people to basically owe them to be slaves. One of the biggest ways that that particular scenario plays out in North Carolina is through education, through you know primary, middle school, high school education. The, a lot of those teachers got loans that said, if you come and work in the school system for X number of years, right. you won't have to pay that back. And so, I mean, so effectively, a lot of our teachers are... According to the Bible, they're slaves, which is not the and setup they're slaves for, for a ten good years, education. Right. They're slaves for 10 years, I think, is what the time frame is. And they basically all agree that, well, I guess I'll be a slave for 10 years. And we've even had people in our church that the, the wife is going, wait a second, the Bible says be keeper at home. I should be raising my children. And it, But it means that now all of a sudden, if I quit, which is what I want to do, I have this whole slavery because that was all going to be paid for just by working in the – you know, working in the public schools for 10 years, and then it was all going to go away. But now if I quit and actually raise my own children instead of sending them to other slaves that are going to raise the children for me, right? I mean, this is this is the, the, met, the mess and how the, all these things interconnect. But it puts real pressure on people to do what their master says that they should do. And a lot of times the master is the government. And a big part of America's problem with that is that um, we are not just getting into uh, financial servitude, but we're slaves to our own desires. You know, because a lot of, you know, we talked about some about how the government's encouraging mortgages and whatnot and dr- that drives up home prices. But I mean, but a lot of it is people want the bigger homes and they're willing to take on massive debt because they want a bigger home because they want to keep up with their neighbors because they enjoy the luxury of it. And so the fact is that people are just willing to do that. They don't see the debt as a real restriction. They want to do it. They want to, you know, live their life on credit cards that they're not going to pay back because that's the, they, they, they are enslaved to their own desires. Right. They'll let their, their life insurance pay it back when they die is what a lot of the, you know, the way it's working or their, their children will pay it back. But but this idea of debt being so widespread in the world, we should recognize why that is. Because in 
in the law, God gave us this picture, right, that every seven years, everybody's debt was supposed to be released. And that's a really important picture because the point is all of us are debtors, and God is the only one that releases the debt. So in the law in Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2, it says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debt. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. And so this picture of why, you know, we're looking at a very unrighteous society in America. That's why there's such a heavy level of debt everywhere. And this is because God is saying you need to be released of your spiritual debt, the debt that you get, that you accrue because of sin, but he allows the financial accrual to be there so that everybody sees the picture, that we're all slaves in the sense that the United States owes, what, a, like $100,000 per person. When they're born, they owe $100,000 as a citizen of the United States. Based on the national debt. Based on the national debt, forgetting individual Forgetting debt. personal debt, right. And just based on the national debt, they owe 100000 I mean, this this is the picture of why Christ had to come, because we all have a huge debt. And that's the only reason we can be saved. And it's a more important debt than the financial debt that we're talking about. But God has put financial debt in the world so that we can understand the spiritual problem. And again, this is kind of what we were talking about earlier is when you when you you have a bad view of what debt is or what slavery is, you can't come to these verses and actually I mean, a lot of people look at these verses and they they recognize they're talking to a spirit about a spiritual thing. But they actually don't recognize the physical thing that they're pointing toward. They don't. They don't really see the symbol in their lives. They don't see the way that 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 indebtedness makes you a slave. And so there's this part of it where I mean, we just we actually need to be able to get back to where we can see these things, so that we can actually understand what God is talking to us about, so we can understand our slavery. If you go back to what it says about in Psalm thirty-seven twenty-one where it says that, you know, the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and give. We should recognize that this is a real, this should be what we're working towards, right? We shouldn't be working as a Christian. You're not working to say how much debt can you get away with. What you're working to say is, how can I give more? How can I provide more money for the kingdom? How can I do things that will cause God's God's will and goodness and mercy to be made known? And it's not just that the wicked borrows, but the righteous gives. And the church has moved away from that, and it's just in the church it's almost how much can you borrow just like it is in the, in the, the country. But the riches – or the, excuse me, not the riches – the righteous gives. So I mean, maybe this is the wrong place to talk about this, but – so I mean I know there's a lot of people who you know I'm acquaintances with who they have a big business plan of how they're going to buy this house and then – you know mortgage and rent it out and then use the profits from that. And then they're going to, you know, in two years, they're going to be able to buy this house and this house. And then they're going to keep build this whole network of all this, all these properties that are all, you know, mortgaged. Um, and so let, let me just stop you right there. What they're acting like is that all these numbers work. But if you look, we have in the last 130 years, 140 years, we have gone through from where virtually everybody that owned their home owned their home to the point where almost nobody owns their home. So the people who, the homeowners have gotten distinctly poorer in the last 150 years since we started mortgages. And who's gotten rich? Lenders? Banks and insurance companies. They're the ones that got rich. So this person who goes, I'll borrow this and I'll do this and I'll do this. 
that works great until you have a collapse in the in the in the financial markets in the the real estate market which they happen they happen all They're the time into the and people don't act like they ever happen and when they happen they lose this and they go broke the ones that win in that scenario are the banks they always have won they've been winning for a long time in this and the person who thinks that they can just borrow all this money and this plan's going to work it works when there's if you discount all risk it's when you put risk in and you put in a every 10 years a 20% 30% drop in value all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore right covid you know like commercial real estate commercial real estate dropped 30 or 40% something like that you know 2 years ago the people that were borrowing building billion dollar buildings five billion dollar buildings they didn't expect all of a sudden that building that they just spent five billion dollars on now to be worth three billion dollars but that happens in the real estate market all the time and so it's this naive thing that you can do this and you can do this and forget who it actually works it's the banks that win and and part of the reason it works is because they're the lords they're the masters right and so whenever there is a financial collapse you wonder why they end up getting bailed out is because there are many people who who they who owe them, and so they look at them and go, "You owe me, and you know you owe me," and so people do. You know what I mean? It's I mean they have a lot of control at that point, whereas no one else does. And 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 some of it too is, I mean, you don't even have to run the numbers at a certain point. I think because you read the verse and says, "A borrower is the slave to a lender." <laughs> do you want to sell yourself into slavery to be a multimillionaire in twenty years? Is do you want to do that? And people have done that. <laughs> Joseph, he didn't sell himself. Joseph was sold into slavery, and it weren't as well for him as it could possibly go. He was the second in Egypt, but he was a slave. He and couldn't he go back. Permission to he go couldn't back go to the promised land. He never made it back to the promised land because he was a slave. It wasn't his choice. Well, he did go back to bury Jacob, but okay. Well, he didn't. He didn't move there. He could not leave, and he could only go there by getting Pharaoh's permission. Right, and so you know, it's that, and and so ultimately, you know, you can. Get a lot of benefits from, you know, these big schemes or you might lose your shirt or but ultimately you are putting yourself in a slavery relationship. There's also a part of it where one of the things we've done in destroying this is we've actually not let people actually become much more like what would be a standard form of slave, which is actually where some like I was talking to my son. I said, you want to learn a skill. Let's say there's someone who says, hey, look. I'll teach you this skill. It's going to take us a couple years to do that. It's going to take me three years to teach you this. When I'm done teaching you this, I want you to promise me you'll work for me for three years. You know, and there's this part of it where he's going to invest in you. And at the end, and if you work for him for three years, he'll say that, that you've paid back that investment. But he's actually investing in you. He's not giving you this. You're not spending money on this thing. It's still a risk. I mean, it still may end up the industry you're in could die. You know what I mean? There could be all sorts of, there's, you're not the elimination of risk, but because but you're not allowed, there's even a scenarios where sometimes you're not even allowed to make certain types of deals anymore because we vilified the concept of slavery. We vilified the idea where you could make some sort of contract that really, and, and you can do contracts sort of like that, but they used to call it indentured servitude, right? I mean, and we still have it. It's just called the military, right? Because outside the military, it's illegal, but inside the military, that is what they do all the time, right? Because it is a very practical way to train people. And so the military does that, but then you say to do it in the private sector and they go, that's evil. That's slavery. 
Right. Well, no, that's that's a normal form. I mean, that's that's the apprenticeship. You just couldn't go. Well, I've been trained for five years. Well, after five years is when you're actually useful, and that last year pays back the first five years of training, and then they go, well, now I'm leaving. Right. And you know, it's the same thing that that in the military just won't let you do that. Because if you pull people out of if you put people in their apprenticeships, you're going to be pulling them out of the university system, and that's kind of a cash cow. So right. And, and I mean, we should, but we should really understand this: is you actually end up, you actually end up making it so our society can't have a form of something that would be very useful and very practical because we we don't want to understand the concept at all. We don't want to actually understand what God is talking about and what God is trying to actually address. And so we, you lose a physical manifestation of a good thing because you're so intent on calling it evil. You're saying something like indentured servitude where, where you, you're freely entering into a contract that has a set term of years and you're saying, hey, you're going to do something for me now at the front end and then I owe you for this number of years, and then I'm free afterwards. And where his means of getting his money back is by investing in you and making you useful. Well, the two are somewhat different, right? Because the indentured servant isn't that. That's you pay for them to come over because it's it's two years wages. You know, right. when America was settled, and America was settled like a third of the people came over this way. Right. Where somebody would pay, and it was like two years wages that they could never save that when they were in England, and they come over there, and then they have to work for four, five, six years. And then they get it paid off, and then they become, you know, they, they're free to go. But I think the one that is really practical now is the, is the apprentice, right. where you sign an apprenticeship agreement for six years. In that first year, you just do the most common labor, but you start to learn things. And every year, you get more valuable. And in that process, the, the master gets paid back by the end of it. Now we have these apprenticeships that are, that are manipulated manipulative towards the lords in certain fields like like plumbing electrician where it's the apprenticeship program is kind of twisted but originally the apprenticeship kind of program was to do the thing that you're very much talking about and that really worked though adam smith would argue that all apprenticeships were like that and they were all economically inefficient but that's probably a conversation for another day Adam Smith had some weird ideas as well as some good ideas. But they were definitely less economically efficient. They were more economically efficient than borrowing money to then purchase an education, which doesn't necessarily guarantee. You know what I mean? There's no individual. Yeah, being, that is not efficient. They're, they're, well, se- the, they're the separating the interest. Right. The major inefficiency there is the person that's loaning knows that the student is not going to pay them back, that the government is guaranteeing it. So therefore, they – would you loan $500,000 to a doctor that you know is going to make $250,000 a year? That's not a bad investment. To loan $400,000 to a person who wants to study how to draw cartoons? Well, no, that's right. ridiculous. And that's what – but the government has made it so that the risk is the same in both cases. So nobody's evaluating it and say, should we actually do this? Should we actually invest 400000 in something that might pay you $25,000 a year? Right. Which is not any different than the housing crisis where the government just eliminated risks and said anybody can get a house no matter what your income is, no matter what you're able to pay down. We're so interested in getting people into houses that all of a sudden you had people getting into houses where it was not a good investment to have those people. Specifically when you're talking about 2008, it was really let's get people that can never afford houses into houses. Well, guess what? 
that system was going to blow up. And Bush was the one that was pushing that. And it was an insane idea to begin with. It was based on prejudice and these other things that they were saying was existed in the banking system because certain groups of people can afford houses and certain people can't because they don't have the resources to pay for them. Well, guess what? Passing a law that says that you have to give the mortgages to the other people, Isn't they solve can't pay for it. Problem. It doesn't solve the financial problem that they can't pay for it. And so there are times that, you know, that it makes sense, right? If there's, if there's, if you can't feed your family, should you sell your future labor for your family? I think the answer is yes, right? And I would argue that from First Timothy five eight. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so we have real obligations. And if sometimes the only way to fulfill your obligations to your family is to become a slave, the answer is you should become a slave. I remember growing up and there were people who were so adamantly against debt. And, and I don't think they, I mean, in a sense, in a practical sense, they had a good, at, I mean, it was a, it was a good attitude. It was a good recommendation. It was a, but they took it to the point of where if you do it, it's absolutely evil in any scenario. There's no scenario where it would be justified in doing so. And, and it ends up removing the ability to think through certain things. It removes the ability to actually, to, like I said, to think about what's going on, what the cost of something is, what the value of something is. And like you said, if you're selling your future labor, there is real risk in that because you're, you're taking a risk that in the future that, that values of the things you're acquiring aren't going to change. But like you said, if it's saving your son's life, if it's saving your children's, you know, giving your children the ability it's to medical eat, debt. you're not going to look at it in the future and go, that wasn't worth it. And so... In the end, I mean, there are scenarios where you look at it and you can absolutely answer that the trade is worthwhile. Even if it ends up being that later on you have to pay more than you thought you were going to, you still would have paid it. And so, and it really has to do with the value of the item received, right? Right. Because how do you put a value on the fact that your family doesn't starve to death? Right. I mean, it's really hard to put a value on that. So if the so the value of that will not decrease. Right. So even right, even if you had to pay more later for that for what you received, like you said, it was worth it. Right, because the value of it is so so high. Right, it, it's that we don't actually do that value calculation. We don't consider what's the value of what we're we're embracing debt for. That is the big problem in this country is that we just don't think the value matters, but it very much matters. Is this worth going into slavery for? And the answer is for certain things, yes. If it's my son needs this operation or he'll die, the answer is, okay, so I have to borrow the money. So even in that case, right, part of it is because, you know, the case where the person says, I just can't live, right, because my family will starve to death because, you know, and I have to borrow money. That's the only way to feed it. We we have to recognize that that's because our system, our culture has all these sins embedded in it that force us into those kind of positions. And when you're forced into that position because of a broader sin, you just have to accept that this is the providence of God. For instance, what's supposed to happen in Leviticus 23:22, when you reap the harvest of the land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So if we were doing what we should be doing and that person who's starving, the answer is and can't feed his family, the answer is you should give him opportunities to work so that he can feed his family so he doesn't need to go into debt. But if the culture's not doing what it's supposed to do and the church is not doing what it's supposed to do, then they get forced to go into debt. So some of the debt that gets incurred, you know, just like with the mortgages, some of the reason that we have huge debts for the mortgages 
are societal sins that are just manifesting themselves in individuals' lives. And even when, and we should be careful in one sense, like there are people who hear the phrase that society forces you into this. We don't be too tempted to get a, a victim complex because in right. the end, I mean, the system. we are society. Right. You know what I mean? And so there's this part of it where, I mean, it's our sins. It's the, it's, it's our desires. It's our parents' desires. It's what we're going to do. Our children are going to suffer the results of our decisions, and they're going to be forced because of sins we've committed. So I mean, and there's a lot, of, and there's a lot of benefits too. Like, okay, yes, you know, you you're to save your child's life, you will be saddled with half a million dollars of medical debt. On the other hand, and that's society's fault. On the other hand, if you lived in any other society within the past 10 years, your child would have died. So like, which one do you want to pick? I mean, there's right. benefit. Right. We get a ton of benefits and there are also downsides. Yep. Just make sure you hear that correctly. <laughs> I mean, when you look at the gleaning laws, I mean, you should, I mean, I was looking this up the other day. I mean, gleaning laws were actually built into a lot of cultures for a long time. I mean, they, I think they still exist in some countries and there are still certain things that they still do in certain, in certain areas to, to kind of honor the idea, but it wasn't that long ago that that most nations still had some concept of this, and so I mean it's a very modern thing where we've moved we've moved to kind of pure cash transaction based thinking, and we've or eliminated even food based, right? I mean, right. it really comes back to FDR and what happened during the Great Depression, and basically the government saying people don't have responsibility to care for other people, the government will do it for you. Right. And because of that, that creates all these other secondary problems because whenever people mess things up and put it outside of the order that God ordered in the world, then it creates secondary problems and tertiary problems and those just, yeah. And so some of it is we just are reaping that harvest. We've had many different mileposts along the way where we've looked at scriptural passages that say, hey, here's how to think about slavery. Here's how to think about debt as a type of slavery. And it's helpful to get sort of the big picture. What does God think about when when there's a lot of debt in the nation, when there's a lot of debt that people have, does the Bible say anything about that? How does, how does God want us to think about that? So that, that sort of sets the boundaries for, let's talk about the exceptions inside. You can go to Deuteronomy 15, verses 6 to 8. It says, for the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs." And so this is, God's talking about, this is what it looks like when you have a righteous nation, is that righteous nation is going to be one that has such an abundance that the cash flow's moving out. It's lending, it's not borrowing. When there's somebody poor there, there's plenty to take care of them. And it's, you know, it's not saying the government's going to be doing it. This is saying at individual levels, there will be individuals that are having these interactions. You know, a poor man in your gates, you are going to be taking care of him. Right. When we look at, you know, it's, he's talking to Israel and saying, you'll lend to many nations. In Deuteronomy 28, he says, if you disobey my laws and my commandments, then you will be the, the borrower opposite. of many nations. Right. And that, and you just look at America in the last 150 years, and we've completely flipped, right? We used to be, before World War II and during World War II, we were the, we were the nation that was lending to everybody else. And since then, now we're borrowing from everybody else, and we're deeply in debt. And so this whole thing is flipped, and you look at the trajectory of, of 
the morals of our society, and they've flipped along the way, right? Our society has very much flipped since the, you know, in terms of what we say is acceptable behavior in the last 150 years. Not 150 years, last 100 years, 80 years, 90 years. So you could say, if you want to know if God's blessing a country, follow the money. Right. And and you can you can really clearly say, according to Deuteronomy 15, America is not experiencing the blessing of God right now. Look at the money. Right. And, and then it has this passage about the poor. And when it says, open your hand wide to the poor, right, it's saying that there will be people in a society that where the whole country can lend, that there'll be individuals in that society that they can lend to people. But when you look at it, it's lending with an expectation to repay. So there is the poor, right? There's levels of poverty. There's the poor who needs to eat, and you should give him food. That's what the Bible says, right? I was hungry and you fed me, Matthew 25, but it's throughout the Old Testament. But then there's these other people where they're they're trying to figure out how to feed their family, and in that case, it is valid to loan them money with the expectation to pay them back. A blacksmith that doesn't have any blacksmith tools because his blacksmith shop just burned to the ground, build him a blacksmith shop. You can expect to, he can pay you back. And so that's when you should be willing to lend. And so the idea of borrowing money for a valid business, for a valid idea, right? A plumber that wants to set up a plumber shop so that he can start start doing that where it's these regular things and I'm not saying like the blue sky things like you want to be on the 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 beginning of Facebook or something but where somebody's trying to do a really practical business we're supposed to loan money for that and we're supposed to help them do that and the bible isn't saying in that case you know don't borrow money it's saying that if the poor comes to you and he has a reasonable plan to pay it back that you should open your hand wide to him so it's not a sin to lend and in that place it's would be much better to not be poor. But if you're poor, it's not always wrong to borrow either to get yourself out of that situation. And I think there's some other, you know, places where we could say that debt is uh, acceptable. You know, there's some people and, you know, I haven't heard a lot of the Dave Ramsey stuff, but I know a lot of people, you know, talk about cutting up all your credit cards, getting rid of all all debt, including credit cards. Um, And if that's something you need a step in to take to not because you, you know, can't control your spending on credit cards, then by all means, go for it. But I think, you know, debt is, you know, an obligation. It's a form of slavery. But I think to use credit cards when you are not exceeding the money you have in your savings account, you know, the obligation there is so, or the, you know, the bondage of that debt is so minimal. That's trivial to eliminate it, right? You just write a check, you You just transfer money. So, right. So, you know, what, you know, it, to, to, to have that bond that bondage actually affect your day-to-day life would be like all the banks shut down and the U.S. government shuts down. I mean, it's you get to be some like pretty extreme. So, you know, effectively it's not you, – you've pretty, pretty much mitigated that as a, as a form of slavery as long as you're not in slavery to your overspending. So what right, you're saying is that some problem. of them give cash back, some of them give. I mean, there can be there can be an advantage in using them if you're not a slave to the if you're not a right. slave to and, the debt. And, and because protection, right? And the the reality, yeah, and the government even pushes you for towards that with fraud protection and stuff. I mean, it's very clearly pushing you towards even a credit card versus a debit card because the fraud protection is different. But when you when you look at something like that, the reason that they do that and the reason they give 2% back and all that stuff is because they recognize how much people are slaves. Right. And because they fall into slavery so easy, they're willing to pay you to have the risk that you'll enter into slavery because they'll make so much if you enter into slavery. 
And so they constantly offer deals like that. But if you're not tempted to that slavery, then they're just giving you money for, you know, for convenience in a real sense. And it's a lot higher risk to use a debit card where somebody can actually take money from your account and it's not guaranteed. But, you know, and, but people do argue some similar things saying, well, I have a mortgage because I, I pay, you know, whatever, 2% on my mortgage, but I'm going to make 4% on the stock market. But I think even that is quite, quite That's a incredibly speculative yeah. as opposed to to say, I'm going to put $1,000 on my credit card this month and I have $2,000 in the bank, so I will pay it off at the end of the month. That's not speculative or not nearly the same level of speculativeness. One of the things that we have to recognize is just like the credit card companies that they, they do all those programs to get you to try to build up your debt is that, that most debt in this country is because people don't want to live within their means. It's really important to recognize that the poor person is one who spends more than they make and the wealthy person is one who makes more than they spend. And so that's why you have these – the, you know, you hear about this occasionally that there's a woman that's, you know, a cleaner at the university and she dies and she gives $3 million to the university. Well, she only made 25000 but if you only spend 10000 you become wealthy. And this is a really simple principle. But most people go, I have to have this, I have to have that, I have to have all these things. And so because of that, they're selling themselves into slavery for luxuries. And People need to really consider that and really consider why they do that. Sometimes they do it because of, you know, that they want to keep up with the guys next door, right, which our country pushes really hard. But we need to recognize that they're pushing it saying you should be a slave so that the person next door doesn't look at your car and go, oh, look, you drive an old car. We're tempted to want. We're tempted to just want this thing and we want to go get it just to satisfy our lust, basically. I mean, where Scripture says we're tempted when we're drawn away by our own desires. And so we see something, we want it, we go out and do it. And there's other cases where it's because of fear. It's because, you know, we have this concern and someone builds up fear with us and they cause us to be, you know, and, and it's in a sense, fear is an aspect of desire, right? I mean, these things are linked right. together. But, I mean, it really does start to be tied to the sovereignty of God. That, you know, there's so many different things where we're seeking to either insure ourselves against something that we really don't need to insure ourselves against we're seeking to hedge against some possible danger, some possible damage, some possible risk that may not be warranted at all to even consider. And we actually don't consider that, that God is sovereign, that the thing that we're saying that I need to protect myself from or the thing that I need to deal with this, that this isn't a, something we should be concerned about, that we should actually trust in God. And so, I mean, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be confused. People sell themselves into slavery all the time through history because of fear. I mean, fear is a very strong motivation for that. And even the example I used of an old car, there's a lot of people that go, but that car could break down while I'm driving. Well, if it does, the idea that you can't call somebody, that you couldn't deal with it then, what they really, they just can't tolerate that idea of risk. And right. they can't just say, well, this is God's sovereignty. And that doesn't mean that you drive the car without brakes because it's not say, pushing you towards foolishness. But a lot of times people want to, to do things so that they feel safe instead of saying obedience to God is where true safety is. Right. And for a lot of those examples, conveniently, they have to feel safe by having something that's nicer for them. Right. <laughs> Very conveniently. And it really is, you know, Romans 8, 5 through 6 says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
and when you look at it and even that idea, right, you can have that idea of I have an old car, it could break down. And so you could say it could break down and then I could be in a really bad neighborhood and somebody could kill me. I could be stuck in the middle of the night. Or you could have the idea, well, if it broke down, it's God's sovereignty and maybe that somebody will come up that I'll meet, that I'll talk to God because he appointed it, right? And it really is, are you carnally minded or spiritually minded? In a lot of ways, when you assume the worst, it's usually because you're carnally minded. And it doesn't mean, again, that you drive a car without brakes, but it does mean a lot of times we just leap to the worst possible conclusion and then act like we need to mitigate that worst possible conclusion. So saying, hey, God does a lot of things that make us uncomfortable, but he does it so that we're, you know, if you're a child of God, he does it to improve you, to cause you to, to, to mature and to grow in your faith. Because let's be honest, when most of us are tempted to go and buy a new car, it's not when our car is some rickety monstrosity that we're actually really scared is likely to break down all the time. It's when we're given an excuse to think it might break down. We're given, you know, I mean, it's just. At the so I used to work for General Motors as a good example. And at General Motors, what they would do when I worked there, and it's changed since then. But they would try to design every part to fail at 70,000 miles because they found if you can get the car to have two problems within a three-month period, most people will sell their car. So that way you can get people to turn over cars every 70,000 miles. And the person who bought that new car who's you're trying to get to turn over because the person who bought the new car, when it turns over, they'll buy another new car. So they designed everything with that in mind. And that's also why the Japanese cars came in who didn't design it that way and they kind of almost took out the American car manufacturing business was specifically because that's what American car manufacturers were designing for. And it kind of goes, I mean, honestly, when you think about the mindset, it goes back to what you were talking about of the way they build houses to a code to eliminate any chance of anything. There's a part of it where if your idea is I can't bear any risk ever. And like I said, we live in a world where we now have the ability to carry these untethered communication devices with us pretty much wherever we, you know what I mean? We can right. call people wherever we go. We have a greater capacity to be safe today than we've ever had. And we're more fearful of things than we've really almost ever been. And so we just really need to understand, I mean, a lot of our fears are justifications for spending. Right. A lot of our fears are, and, and when you think of that as justification for going into debt, for becoming a slave, it starts to change the way you think about it, or it should it should. I mean, I actually remember right. a friend of mine saying, someone I worked with years ago, and she said she was going to do something, and she had to take. She was like, you know, once you buy a house, once you're like 150 or 200 thousand dollars in debt, going into debt for like a thousand dollars doesn't feel like anything anymore. She, I mean, and it was a really interesting point. It was like she goes, you just become numb to it. Like I already owe 200 thousand dollars. What's another thousand? Who really cares? And it was a really interesting point because I actually think that's that is a very that's common an interesting mindset view that people have. And so I've I mean, just never even had that thought at all. So that's why I'm just yeah. But I can see how people would. I just it's just never crossed my mind. Right. I mean the the number of websites where they have the finance option to buy stuff that right. no one should ever be financing. Like right. you should, no one should ever do this. Because you pay like 20% more because you, you know, did it over years of payments. Like, this is not something that anyone needs tomorrow. And right. like everybody's doing it now. You like to go to Lowe's website, you go to Amazon website, and they all have, if you're spending over a certain amount, they talk about and how you can really do monthly payments. it's a really low amount now. I mean, it's become Oh, I know. It's like amount. $150 or something <laughs> they start to add. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's lower than that now. I mean, I, I think it was, I think I saw one for like $40. 
And it used to flip, right? I mean, buying on installment plans used to be very normal, but it used to be that you never got it until you made all the installment payments. Layaway. Now we've flipped. I remember it. layaway. Yeah, yeah. And that used to, the to be very common. You finally get the thing. You finally paid for it. I, I mean, yeah, it was very. Yeah, it was a very. I remember when it went away. I never. I was wondering why it went away, and that's it. It was a. It was a cultural shift in attitude towards debt. Right, and you know, a lot of those were like Sears and stuff, and Sears credit card. I mean, that became Discover later. I mean, it was a huge moneymaker for Sears. So they didn't want to do layaway anymore because they wanted to drive people to go use their credit card. They wanted more slaves because they found out that slaves made them more money. Exactly. I, I mentioned right at the beginning that there's kind of these two groups of people. There's the people that love debt and there's the people that hate debt and maybe hate a little bit too much. Um, and I was thinking that we needed a section in here to in- encourage the people who hated debt. But then I, looking at the notes, I realized it actually needs to be a rebuke, not an encouragement. So that's Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You know, because it's, I mean, you know, personally, I mean, I think I have nothing to complain about. I'm pretty well off. But, um, you know, even having... You know, having the anti-debt mindset, you know, largely when it's unnecessary, having that mindset, you know, it's really easy to still have those conversations of why, why don't we buy this thing? You know, these people have X, those people have X. Why don't we buy it? I mean, it, it comes back to covetousness because we want things that other people have that we can't afford. But to switch back to the encouragement. The reality is, <laughs> after that rebuke, I was oh, wondering yeah, no, how you got yeah. to the encouragement. No, because the thing is, those people, a lot of those people who have it, they can't afford it either. And it just looks like they can. So years ago, we were in Romania um, to do some conferences. And one thing that they have there, they have uh, gypsies there, which the gypsies traditionally were these, you know, somewhat vagabond people who travel through the countryside. Well, some of those people ended up getting pretty rich. But they didn't want to give up this cultural thing they had of camping. And so they would build these big elaborate houses and, and not live in them. They live out back. Sometimes they wouldn't build a big elaborate house. They would build a facade, of a, a facade of a mansion on the street. And so the reality is that a lot of times when we look at our neighbor who has a nicer house than us, they're just the gypsy who's built a facade of a house because they are five years in to their 50-year mortgage. They only own the first 10 feet. The rest of it, the <laughs> bank owns. So, you know, they are able to live in it, obviously. So there's some difference there. But the reality is that a lot of times we're coveting people and we should not want to be in their situation because they cannot afford the things that they have. They're also frequently five years into a seven-year marriage. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not kidding. I mean, like, you know what I mean? Is all of a sudden there's going to be a divorce and then they have to figure out how to split... So, I mean, I mean, these things, all of these things are built up on a presumption of the future. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's covetousness that then causes the problems, that then causes the dissolution of the relationship. I mean, it's just— Right, because, I mean, money is one of the number one issues in, in American marriages. Right. And how much of that, if, if both people— And divorces. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but if, but if, if people were united in saying, let's live within our means, how much of that— how much of those issues are related to right. what what type of a slavery have we gotten ourselves into? And we just forget how little it takes for people to live. We all have to have our cell phones. We all have to have our air conditioning. We all have to have these things that we are so further along as our necessities than what even most Western countries are in terms of what people have. We just think that we should have we think we should have meat at every meal. Well, that is like unheard of in history except among kings. 
But yet we think, well, if you didn't have meat at a meal, that's a problem. And I mean, I'm guilty of that too. But the question is, can you pay for it? And yet we think that eating rice and beans, I mean, the amount it takes to actually live for a year is not that much money. I mean, I haven't calculated recently, but it's not that much money. It's what people want is they don't just want to eat rice and beans every meal. If you eat rice and beans every meal, it's a pretty nutritious meal, and you can eat it pretty much every meal for the rest of your life, and it's cheap. But yet people don't want that. And so we have to really define luxury and covetousness at the right level. And the gypsies that are camping, I remember driving by that one street where all of them were facades on the street. You look at these people that are choosing to live in tents, and you go, but we're all saying, well, we can't survive if we lived in a tent. Well, actually, a lot of people like choose to and can survive fine. It's not that you can't survive there. Our standard of what's minimal acceptable is just so high. We need to get back to reality. Like we were saying earlier, this, this ends up driving it. That attitude drives the market. Because if no one's looking for a thing, no one's going to sell it. And so if the, if the vast population is out there looking for bigger, 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 that's what the market's going to provide. When the church actually becomes salt and light, it actually changes, it changes the way the, it changes a lot of things about the culture. And if you think about this, I mean, you can actually see how the nation would become different if, the, if Christianity had a greater impact on it. You would actually see the way, the way houses would be built would change. And if that doesn't give you some connection to the power of the gospel and the power of the church to transform a nation, I mean, you really need to understand how granular that is. And we need to be careful about what we're exalting in our minds, what we're exalting for our wife and kids as well. Because, you know, there's a time in America where, you know, the the ideal American was the one who went out into the wilderness, built a log cabin with a dirt floor, you know, cleared the forest. You know, he didn't have much, but he owned what he had. And now I think for a lot of people, the, the, the exemplar is the person who, you know, is the hustler, who has a plan that he's going to be a multimillionaire, get his company on the stock exchange, is driving, you know, a sports car that he, you know, has, owes a huge note on. I mean, that's the person that we're exalting. And that's not the person who is living at the healthy life. I mean, we should be respecting the person who, you know, instead goes and lives in the single ride in the woods because that he can actually afford Oh, I mean, yeah, I know people that have, you know, could afford to buy a single wide and then they spent 10 years building a house next to it and then they moved into the house that they paid for and then they sold off. I mean, that's that's good and healthy. And those people, I mean, in, you know, where we live in Wake County, in Wake County, that's even illegal to do a lot of that. They tried to eliminate that very distinctly in the laws so that you can't do that. Well, that used to be how people that would used to be normal when I was growing up. That wasn't that unusual for somebody to get, you know, a cheaper thing that they could live in. And then they would build a house and it would take them a long time to build the house and they'd build it piecemeal. And then once they got it built, we've even passed laws to make that illegal, which is just absurd. And remember, it's not just about money either. It's not just about, you know, how much money you're going to have at the end of the life. Um, because it is, it does relate directly to spiritual things because it says if you can be free, be free. And so, you know, it says the righteous gives, which right means that you don't have money to say how much money can I have at the end? But you say there's a lot of work to be done in the world. Right. And, and if you, you know, are you, you know, are you in bondage to your paying your mortgage? So you have to work, you know, 80 hours a week or are you someone who is able to take time and make less money and go, you know, street preach, whatever it might be and spend time doing those things. Um, and so it does have a very direct, you know, how, 
what can you labor for the kingdom of God? And you're limited if you've sold yourself for things that you don't need. Because if you've, if you've listened to some of the other episodes we've done on like looking for, how do you choose a church or when should you leave a church or things about church life, one of the things we talked about is that the, church, the work of the church is done by the people. And there's a part of it where, I mean, part of the way you get engaged in the church is you become responsible for things that are, that are part of the church. And it becomes a real obligation for you. And, you know, I mean, there's this part of it where other I mean, part of being accountable is other people being dependent upon you, that you do this thing. This is something that you do, and you do it for the church. Well, you're only free to do that if you don't have every other constraint in the world upon you. I mean, there are people who they, they feel so much pressure from the life that they've chosen to live that they don't want to add anything to their life. They're like— they already feel this huge amount of obligation. They're stuck in this position. They're stuck in this. They're chasing all these things. But they've chosen this life, and they are slaves to it. And they're not free to serve God. And they're not free because their mind is carnal, because they're thinking about earthly things, and they're not thinking about spiritual things. And so, I mean, these that you really should understand having I mean, these things, they really touch each other, and they really affect things at a very tight level. The way you live your life is based on what you value and where you spend your time and where you want to be spending your time. Yeah, I mean, and there's your money. Pe- yeah, and your money, right. Yeah, and there's people out there who are on the road 100, 200 days a year, not with their kids, not with their wife, but that's what they have to do to maintain you know, the lifestyle that they're in right? and, and the things that they've bound themselves to, to pay. And as we've started to talk about the church and especially like you were talking before about how much, you know, if, if Christians started to act like, take these things seriously and not desire the carnal things and re- recognize that being free in Christ and being free from, you know, oh, no man, anything except love. Right. I mean this, and, and that's not just talking about financial things, but that, but you can't eliminate financial things from that either. When you look at all those things, I think one of the worst testimonies of the church is that, churches borrow money because you can't fix a society as long as churches borrow money because if churches are borrowing money and you say you're the bride of christ then you're basically christ you're getting an obligation putting an obligation on christ and you're 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 making it so that christ is in that role so you can't turn around and say it's wrong then and that's a huge problem i mean that's to me is the biggest problem with where we are with that is that any church would borrow money. Because to borrow money, right, we remember what it says in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith, faith and is worse than an unbeliever. When a church goes out and gets a mortgage on a building, what it's saying is that Christ, because he could not provide for his own, that he's worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith, that Christ has done that because Christ would not provide. And that's where we are as a society, is that we're saying, as a church society, we're saying in most cases, Christ is worse than an, un- an unbeliever. He's worse than an infidel. This is a huge problem, and you will never fix the problem with individuals until the church starts to say, of course Christ doesn't need to borrow money. Christ does provide for his own. He does provide for his church. He gives his church what she needs and that may not be this nice, huge, beautiful building that has a, the you know, the hundred thousand dollar sound system, which is what churches say they have to have. Well, if Christ didn't provide the money for that, you don't have to have it. And that goes that's and that's really goes back to that issue of contentment. And and absolutely I mean, because there's this part of it where the church insists it must have this thing that, like you said, that Christ says he's not willing to pay for, or that Christ says I'm not willing to pay for today. 
Right. You know what I mean? And there's a really big part of that that he's saying there's a, you know, is there a period of time where you have to meet in houses where you have to do this, where you, ha- I mean, is, is that going to be something that you do? Are you willing to do it? And people go, we can't do that. And you go, why? Right. Or we won't grow in the way we, you won't grow in the way that Christ wants you to grow. You won't grow. I mean, it really starts to be it, a, a, it really becomes about his will. What you're saying is, the church that's going out and borrowing that money, they're saying it's God's will that we have this building, but yet he can't provide for it. Well, that's a big problem. That's a rejection, a fundamental idea of who God is, his sovereignty, his his omniscience, his omnipotence. I mean, it really is a rejection of the basic character of God when you start to say it's his will we have this building, but he can't provide for it. His provision is our slavery. That that's I mean, right. his provision is that we sell we are, ourselves into slavery. Right. That he is he is such a horrible master that he has to sell his household into slavery. That is just an insane idea. But churches out there, because we don't think about that the right way, churches out there go, Of course I should do this. How else will we have that building? Instead of going, God doesn't want you to have that building. John sixteen, twenty three and twenty four says, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So if you go and you pray for a new church building and God doesn't give you it, he's saying you will be more joyful by not having it. That's what he's saying. You will be more joyful by not having it. So then the people go out and say, we have to get a mortgage. We have to get a bigger building. And it is rebellion against God, and it's saying God doesn't know what will make you happy. He doesn't know what will make the church more successful. He doesn't understand his bride. It is very fundamentally a rejection of who God is when a church goes into debt. Let me push the the metaphors that are common throughout the New Testament where it talks about Jesus and his bride. And you hear things about Jesus purchasing a bride with his own blood. You hear things about him redeeming a bride. Well, that redeeming, I mean, that's language from buying out of slavery. Purchasing is, well, what's he doing? Well, he's buying a bride out of slavery. He's making her his own. And, and then, so what we're saying in one sense, with all of those metaphors that populate the entire New Testament, this is what Jesus does. Jesus did something. He bought a bride. And now the church is turning around saying, but he couldn't afford her. He couldn't afford to care for her. Not to care for her in the way she should be cared for. Right. Which is very much what Israel was saying, which is why God rejected Israel, because that's what Israel was saying. He can't provide for us the way that we should be provided for, so we'll go after all the other nations of the earth. He won't give us what we want. You know, it starts with David. Right? He won't give us a king. It's that same idea. He, God is our God, but he won't give us what we want, so we have to go to an idol. When a church goes and gets a mortgage, it's it's idolatry. It's saying God can't provide what we want, so we need something else, which means you want a different God. I mean, you look back in church history, and where are the times that the church is meeting in basements, in upper rooms, in fields? Are Catacombs. Those, right. Are those the times that the church is vibrant, or is it the times when they were building massive cathedrals that took hundreds of years to build and cost untold amounts of money? I mean, which one was the vibrant church? And when they were building those cathedrals that were massive, right, what they were doing is they were purchasing that by future promises of giving away sin or or removing sin, right? I mean, they were selling futures of something that they were committing to God to. 
that he'll forgive you your sin because you gave money to build St. Peter. I mean, that's how they were built was through indulgences. I mean, it's just like so flipped on its head. It's different than the loans that are done now, but they're in the same category. And I don't think people see them as being in the same category, but they're in the same category. It's all idolatry. And there's a part of it where if you look where the church is now, it's, it's fitting. You know what I mean? There's this part of it where, I mean, we should, I mean, if we honestly look where the visible we are, church, yeah, please, please yes, modify that with the yes, visible church. And I'm, and I'm not because talking, Christ and I'm does not provide for his bride. What I'm saying though, is when you look, when I look at where I am, when I look at where I am, the saying, you know what, if God wants us to meet in, cause you look at the church and the history of the church. And there were times where the church was in really bad situations where it was, it was in, it was in its early stages of being persecuted and you look at it today, do you really want to look at it and go, no, we, this, where we are spiritually, we deserve our grand place to meet. I mean, is that where the church is? And I don't know that this church should ever do that. But what I'm saying is, is it's very fitting that we humble ourselves. It's very fitting that we go, you know what? This is how you were, this is how the church actually returns to God is that, we bow our head and go, what you've given us is sufficient. Right. You're right. What we have is all we need, and you are enough, and our faith is enough. And our, you know what I mean? And, it, and if it means that some people have to stand up, that was kind of the, you know, the most vibrant times in church history. There's revivals where they have to stand up for the three-hour service because there's not enough room for people to sit down. No, they just said, it's worth it to be here if we have to stand. We're saying it's not worth it to meet with God unless he gives us everything we could possibly dream of, and spe- especially a nice sound system to make sure every all the music's in stereo and everything. You know, John 8, 36 says, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You know, we ended talking about how he has made the church free. Church should never return to slavery. But that's true for all, all of us as well. Does it mean that God in his providence can't appoint a time where we should sell ourselves into slavery because we have a higher obligation? Yes, if you're not carnally minded. But if it's about being carnally minded, there's no place to sell the freedom that Christ gives to slavery. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.